Have you ever had uh, the pleasure of dealing with someone who was very right but handled it in, oh, there's such the wrong way? Um, I'm sure all of us have had that at one point or another. A couple years back, my wife and I had gone out. Rachel was pregnant with our third child. We have three kids. We have an eight-year-old girl and a six-year-old girl and a three-year-old boy, and she was pregnant with our last one, and we had a nice night out. Anybody remember having a nice night out without kids? Awesome. Really good, right? Um, neither did we much. Um, so we'd gone out, and uh, we'd gone out to this like hipster coffee shop downtown. We were excited. One of the kids in my, um, one of the students in my edge group was playing music that night. So we had this whole night out. We're there, and so she's pregnant. You know, when you're pregnant, you've got to watch out for caffeine, right? You have to limit your intake and all that kind of stuff. And so we get in there, and she really wanted to have a cup of tea. We're gonna, I was gonna have coffee. We're gonna do the whole thing, right? So she's looking at the menu, and there's like a thousand different teas on the board. Now at our house, there's like one tea. It comes in a bag. You put it in a cup. That's it. Tea, hot water, boom. Um, but this place, it was like insane how many things are there. So she's looking through and she's trying to find one that doesn't have any caffeine, right? Because she's being careful. So she finally limits it down to some minty thing that looked interesting. So she asked the, the young woman who was working behind the counter there, said, okay, um, what, what about this, this green guave mint tea? Does, it, does that have caffeine? And the young woman, um, just in a fairly disaffected voice, looked at her and goes, it's herbal. Okay, thank you. Um, it was not the answer to the question that we had. Now, some of you are tea drinkers, and you know that herbal tea doesn't have caffeine. I Googled that, made sure it was true before I did that. I want to make sure facts are right. Um, but at the time, we did not know this. We just needed to know, did it have caffeine? Because she's being careful. So Rachel is a very sweet person. She's very kind. She's very patient. And so she sort of looks at the young woman. She's like, oh, I, oh that's, so, that's good to know. But what I need to know is, does it have caffeine? You see, I'm pregnant. I'm trying to be careful. i got to limit the caffeine intake. And so I just want to know if that particular... That, that tea right there, does it, does it have caffeine in it? Because, you know, careful and all that. And I kid you not, the, the young woman just sort of looks at her and leans across the counter. And with the biggest eye roll I've ever seen, and she goes, it's herbal. And that was it. So um, thank goodness for Google at that point that we could figure out that she could drink the tea and move on. But have you ever been it's herbaled? Has that ever happened to you, right? I mean, and it's not just at hipster coffee shops. It's like everywhere in our life. And it doesn't usually happen too far away from home because here's the thing. One of the great things I get to do when I come up front is I get to confess all of my many, many sins and brokenness to you. And I am an it's herbal person. I love to be right. It is one of those things. And I would love to blame it on my dad because he's a teacher and he loved to give us trivia and make sure we knew things. It's not his fault. It's my fault, right? As I've been working on this sermon, I've had to come to grips with, no, this is just my pride. This is just me. I like to be right. I'm so right to the fact that this is something that I used to say quite often, and I'm glad someone made a shirt of it. I'm never wrong. I once thought I was wrong. Turns out I was mistaken. Um, I used to live by this motto, and I, those words have literally come out of my mouth before because I just enjoyed being right. And can you imagine how well this goes at home? Not so much. Um, and we're seeing it now kind of go down to the next generation. AJ's here. She was not here last week. I gave this message to Lake Mary. She was still in base camp. So she has to hear a story about herself. Um, we're seeing this played out because of this uh, to the next generation down. The things we do affect other people, right? So AJ's eight. She's uh, in the backyard the other day. And we're in the kitchen right next to the doorbell. AJ's outside where you cannot hear the doorbell. And she came in and she said, uh, the doorbell rang. Someone's here. And we're like, you can't hear the doorbell. That was a wind chime at best. And she's like, nope, someone's here. And we're in the kitchen. We're like, well, that's fine. You can go check the front door. So she goes to the front door, opens it. I hear like the chain clink. And I hear a pause. She's like, oh, hi, Aubrey. Why don't you come on in? Well, Aubrey's one of our neighbors. We were not expecting her. And she's not like a neighbor enough where she'd like walk over. And, that, and you hear AJ. She's like, like say, oh, yeah, come on in. Mom and dad are here. I'm going to go back to the backyard. And AJ walks through the kitchen next to her with a smirk on her face that I can see right now in the shadow up here. And she walks out back. And, she, and, and she's like, yeah, Aubrey's here. She'll be here in a minute. Aubrey is not there. 
she has made up a whole conversation so that she does not have to be wrong, right? And this, is, this is my fault. This is what I do. And, and this is part of the thing. But here's the thing. Like, isn't that part of what's happening so much right now? We all want to be right. There's so much, and we live in a time that is so divided. I don't know if it's more than ever now, but it's at least as much as it's ever been. And I feel like a broken record in some way, because I feel like I say this at our campus all the time. We are in a divided time. We are in a broken time, and it's just so divided between us and other people. And we are reminded about it every minute of every day, I feel like. Every time I turn on the TV, it's a reminder that we cannot get along. Every time I go on social media, it's another thing on there. And it's to the point where it's just like, I don't even know how to navigate life most of the time. I haven't posted in so long, because if you post something that you're thinking about, maybe that's gonna turn someone off. If you post something good, like even a picture of your family having a nice day, well, that might be telling everybody else, look, we're perfect. And we, how do you even navigate any of it? It just feels like this weight is there. And we wanna be able to connect with other people. We wanna be able to think and we wanna be able to have opinions, yet it can create such tension between all of us. And then for those of us who are followers of Jesus, there's this extra level, I feel like, of tension that's on top of it. Because here's the thing, Jesus espouses an absolute truth about who he is. Earlier this year, we did a seven-week series on the I am statements that Jesus made, and they are not statements that Jesus can take back. They are not slippery slopes. They are very clear about who Jesus says he is. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. He doesn't say, I am a way. He doesn't say, I'm one of the ways. He says, I am the way. And he keeps saying these statements about who he is. And so we are, as followers of him, we carry this thing of absolute truth that is such, so beautiful and so life-giving, yet we live in a time where absolute truth is not a thing. It's all relative. And so how do we carry all of this? We're broken. We're fractured. We're divided from our neighbors, even some of our closest friends, sometimes even in our own very families. It's hard to have a conversation. And then we have this thing that is so beautiful, this truth that if we really believe it about who Jesus is, that God really sent his son to come to the earth and that Jesus really lived on earth and Jesus really was perfect and Jesus really did go to a cross and Jesus really did die. Jesus really did come back to life so that we can have life and not just life forever though that's part of it, but life for tomorrow. Like if we carry that with us, we think it is the most amazing and life-giving truth that there is. How do we handle that? How do we take that thing that can be so beautiful and so helpful and not do it wrong? How do we take this thing that can be so incredibly helpful and so life-giving to other people, but not do it in such a way that turns everyone off? Because there's a danger in being so right, but handling it so very wrong. Today, we're gonna to be looking at John chapter eight, verses two through 11. If you have your Bibles or your bulletins or your phones, I'd invite you to join along one of the things that we've hoped for you this year is that you've been doing the gospel reading plan. Uh, we put together a way to be able to follow through what's going on throughout the year. And if you haven't started it, we'd invite you to participate in that now. You can go online and sign up for it. There are bulletins out back. It's on the website. And it's a great way because if we believe that if you read scripture, that it is like three to four times more catalytic than anything else you'll do in your life because it is alive. It changes as we spend time in his word. And one of the things that's so helpful is we know what's going around these stories because this story is so great, but it's in the middle of two other things. Like right before this in John chapter seven, there's a long debate about who Jesus is, and he's talking with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees there. And then following the story that we'll be looking at today is a long chapter where Jesus reveals who he is. It's very heady. There's a lot of statements he makes in there. There's a lot of conversation and dense dialogue, yet right in the middle is this incredible story that grounds it all. This illustration that was put there so we can get everything that he's saying about who he is and what he has come to do in the story, it examines all of that. It shows all of that in the person. Now, some of you may have noticed, if you've ever looked at this before, and if you have your Bible out, um, this story is oftentimes in italics. And in fact, in mine, right before it, it says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have this particular section. So what is that? Why is that? Why is it there? Uh, some of you may be asking, is this just a made-up story that we've put here? 
And I don't want to take too much time with too many of the details because there is a lot around it. But I'll tell you this, in the earliest manuscripts of John's gospel that are believed to be from the first century, and that'd be the same century that Jesus walked on earth, this particular passage isn't in many of them. Now, we have very few pieces of actual written New Testament work from that time. The, time, the way that stories were passed on in the first century were oral. These stories were passed around the campfires. People traveled from place to place, and these conversations, these incredible stories, the miracles that Jesus did were passed from person to person, and they were used to keeping very accurate records orally of what was being passed to the next person. So it would be passed on in very clear ways, and then eventually they were written down. So we have copies, and oftentimes copies of copies that have been written down. But if that makes you doubt the validity of the Bible, you should know that more than 99% of these various copies that are in agreement, and in the less than the 1% that have various readings, no major doctrine of Christianity is affected. The differences are minor and they're actually somewhat insignificant. As far as historical documents go, the Bible is very well preserved. Scholars whom I trust say that this conversation probably wasn't written by John, but that it is a true account of an actual conversation, of an actual thing that happened, the way it was shared and what happened in it is something that occurred. This was probably written by another apostle, and if you've been reading the gospel reading plan or going through it at all, you may recognize it. It sounds, many scholars believe, that it could have been written by Luke. Luke uh, was very countercultural in the way he spoke of women and the way he handled things, so it's quite possible, and some of the ancient manuscripts actually put it in Luke. But all of that to say, I believe that the story is the word of God, that it holds up with the heart and character of God, and we're going to approach it as such. So this morning, we're going to be looking at John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11, and I invite you to join along. Verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. One of the things that's been really um, enjoyable for me this year as we've taken this time with Jesus, as we've looked at these stories, is to try to sit inside the story, to try to be able to put myself there, to take the extra time to be able to imagine what were things really like. And I just love how the story is set. You just picture Jesus, he's sitting there in the temple courts and people are gathered around and he's just teaching. And I've thought about how envious I am of the people who actually got to sit at his feet and learn from Jesus himself. But there's just, just this normal picture of Jesus sitting and teaching. He's a rabbi and he's teaching the people sitting around them. It's early in the morning and they're gathered around. Verse three, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. This is a rough scene. Twice, it says the woman was caught in the act. It doesn't leave much wiggle room for what's going on in the midst of this. In fact, the laws of the time made it very clear that if you were to bring this accusation, you had to physically witness what was happening. So there were people standing watching, and this is clearly a trap. It says it here, Jesus recognizes it as such. And so we don't know what condition this woman is. She's caught in the act. In the moment, a gang of men come and grab her, and her life is on the line. And that is the part that keeps coming back to me. This is not just a mere tale. This is not just a mere example that they're trying to make. They are physically putting her life in danger. As soon as she is caught, she knows the law. The laws were known at the time, and she knows that in these moments, her physical life may end, that there is a very real chance that people are going to pick up stones and hurl them at her, and that her life will be over. And these men are using this to prove a point, to try to catch Jesus as he's teaching and to trap him. They're using her in such a way, and there she is. Did she get to grab a sheet? We don't know. We don't know what condition she's in, but I know she's afraid for her life. 
and know that there's a lot of injustice happening around it. And in fact, only half of the law is even being upheld at this point. You see, the law that they had been referring to um, of Moses would have been found in Leviticus 20.10. It's also similarly written in Deuteronomy. And here's how it's written in Leviticus. It says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So where's the man in the picture? I mean, this law clearly says that both are guilty parties. The man and the woman are to be brought, yet they've only got the woman. They are using her as a point. Was he set up as a trap? Was he let go? We don't know. We don't know the story, but we know that they've only got half of the law on their side, and we know that they are using her physical life to prove a point. There is so much wrong in the midst of the scene. And then Jesus does something very curious. Next verse, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And so I've been trying to picture that, right? It's a very heated scene. This woman, her life's on the line. These men have stones and they're ready. They're ready to do whatever they're told in a moment's notice. Her life is over and they're there and they're yelling, what do we do? What do we do? The losses do this. What is it? And it's just heated. And Jesus just bends down. And I have been to any number of camps taking kids and, and being around and heard this preached. Uh, guess what? I'm not the first person who've ever preached on this passage before. I know that's probably surprising. Um, but so much time has been spent wondering what he was writing on the ground. I've heard so many people kind of trying to figure out what he wrote on the ground, and I love that they don't give that detail. They just say that he wrote on the ground because I think something really significant is happening here. He's drawing the attention away because this woman has been put in a bad spot. She's been put in an unfair spot, into an unjust spot, and what he does is he slows things down, and he seems to pull the attention away from her to himself. As they're asking these questions, all eyes, I imagine, start coming to him. Uh, confession time for me, I love magic. Um, I love table magic. I watch the things on how people do the tricks, and every single time I still fall for the trick. I, I, I have every time I try to watch, I, I know he's doing something over here, but you're supposed to watch here, and every time I fall for it, I'm amazed at people who can do sleight of hand. Anybody here does it, you can blow my mind later. Um, there's something about being able to pull attention away, and I feel like in this moment, that's what Jesus is doing. He's pulling the attention away, He's slowing it down, and all eyes are on him. The woman is now not the center of the attention, and things have slowed down enough. Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up, and he said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down and rode on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. I've tried to picture that scene too. I'm guessing this was not a slow process. As he bent down, everyone's eyes probably went down with his as well. If you've ever been caught, and most of us have, most of our parents were good enough to catch us doing things wrong. And you know when you've been caught, the last thing you want to do is make eye contact. Usually our eyes go down because we're starting to think about where we're going. Oftentimes it goes in that place of shame and of the places inside of us. And I imagine Jesus just bending down and their eyes going down and they're wondering who's going to be the first to throw the stone. Yet they don't want to look at each other because they've been caught. He's turned it right back on them. Those who had walked in thinking they were so right all of a sudden know that they were so wrong. I've got to imagine it took a while for the first one because these are guys who are very steeped in the law. They know what is in their right. When he asks the question, you are without sin, throw the first stone. You gotta imagine the soft sound of those, those stones dropping on the sand and one by one they walked off. I'm guessing this took a while and while this has happened, the woman's life is still on the line because any one of them could have decided that they were on the right and could have picked up the stone and started the process. Yet after a while, 
It's just Jesus and the woman left. It says, with the woman still standing there, verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. We've said a lot this year, uh, questions invite relationship. Part of what we've seen in the conversations Jesus has is he oftentimes asks questions. A question requires a response. A question invites relationship. A question isn't just the command. A question has a two-way dialogue going on. He asks her, is there no one left? Has no one condemned you? And her response is very interesting. It's so simple. No one, sir. And as I was looking at it, uh, that sir is actually this Greek word, kyrie. Um, and, and oftentimes that is translated as Lord. Throughout this text, it uses Lord. And there's a very interesting thing as I thought about that. There, there might be this very real sense that for the very first time, this woman who's been caught in the act, who's been living away from all this, has recognized exactly who he is. He is her savior. He is the one who's protected her. He's protected her dignity. He has given her a chance. And she is alive and there's this very real opportunity that she may, for the first time, have seen who he is. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Kaylee has shared the story about the woman at the well. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, I would strongly encourage you. Great message. But in the same way, she recognized who Jesus was and her life was changed. She went and told everyone her story. And I think in a very real way, though we don't know the rest of her story, there's this moment that maybe for the first time she's seen what life could be. For the first time she's seen hope. She is alive again. Nothing quite changes your life like being on the brink of death and having a breath and being able to continue going. And Jesus has afforded her that. But it's been more than just that. It's more than just saving your life. It's been in a relationship. He's offering her hope. No one, sir. But then Jesus says this, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus is caught in a really precarious place because if on the one hand, he upholds the law and says, go ahead and carry it out and stone her. She's been caught, follow through. Then all of the grace he's been talking about, all of these things about God's heart and character that he's been sharing, all of this part about this goes away because the law is the law and there's nothing beyond that. There's no hope other than what we do. There's no way to God except through our performance or our failure. But on the other hand, if Jesus just says, she's off scot-free, everything's good, don't worry about it, then he minimizes the sin. He minimizes the penalty. He says that no longer are doing things wrong or no longer is brokenness a problem. It, it, it minimizes all. So he's caught in the middle. Does he follow the law or does he just give grace, a cheap grace? But what I love is he holds this in balance and he actually does something really incredible. He acknowledges the incredibly heavy weight of sin because here's the thing. And many of you know this, sin is not just a light thing. Our brokenness never affects just us. Some of us are products of generation of brokenness. Some of us here have dealt with alcoholism that has passed down from generation to generation or abuse and the things that have started years back and it carries forward disobedience and sin and brokenness. In the same way, obedience carries forward. For some of you, you may be sitting here because generations ago or maybe even just in the last few years, someone in your family has turned the corner and recognized who Jesus is and has started following him and that obedience has changed your life and you're here because of it. He holds both in balance and says, neither do I condemn you, this rich grace, you are alive, but go and sin no more. Go and look more and love more like me. It's not just the negative of don't do anything any bad anymore, but go and live life. Go and live this life that I've offered you. It's an incredible thing to have both. His full heart and character on display because sin is serious, but so is grace. Grace in this context, a grace that is a life and death grace is rich 
the next verse after this is interesting as well. One of the things that has been so great about having time to be able to read all this in context is the next verse that happens after this, after this moment, after this tense moment, after Jesus says, go and sin no more, here's what he says. Verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I've always loved the imagery of Jesus as light. One of my favorite passages in all the scriptures is John 1. It's a telling of the creation story. It's a telling of the Christmas story in such a beautiful way. It's one I try to share every Christmas uh, wherever we are. It's one that I keep close to me. And I'm going to share the beginning with you today because this light imagery is right there. Again, right after the woman has been sent out to go and send him more to live a full life, is I am the light of the world. We go back to John 1. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, Jesus, was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Verse 4. In him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I find so much hope in that, because we live in a time where it's very dark, don't we? And it says the light keeps shining, and the darkness has not overcome it, nor will it ever and the light of Jesus in that story shines so bright, doesn't it? Because there's a darkness of a setup. There's a darkness of people lying in wait to grab this woman to put her on display, to put her life in the balance to prove a point. There's the darkness of this woman's brokenness and sin of the situation that she's caught in. There's the darkness of the religious leader's sin of the way they're trying to be right and carrying it out so wrong. There's the brokenness of the law that leads to nowhere but, but death and brokenness. There's so much darkness set in the scene, yet Jesus' light shines so bright. And though we don't know the rest of the story, there does seem to be a hint that this woman maybe sees that light for the first time and maybe even takes a step towards that light and sees life for the very first time and maybe has the opportunity to be truly alive. Because real life, real life is living in the grace and forgiveness that leads us to sin no more. Again, it's not just for our sake, it's for the sake around us. None of these things that we do or don't do ever affect only us. It is all of us. I mean, we see it played out in our homes and our families and our friends. It all has the ripple effects. And real grace has the opportunity to do that, to live in light, to live the life of that. We have this opportunity to do that. And what's amazing is even in the midst of that, that offer seems to also be made to the Pharisees who brought him there. It wasn't just a one-sided offer. Even as he turned the tables on them, there seems to be an offer to recognize how wrong you are in your rightness, to be able to turn around and be able to see the light is sitting right in front of you. Don't you want this light in this life? So where are you in the midst of this story? If you had to picture yourself in the story, where do you find yourself? Are you the woman who's been caught? Are you in the midst of living in that brokenness? Are you in the midst of that life not working? Are you on the other side in the judging crowd? If you've not yet received God's forgiveness, that's on offer to you today. One of the beautiful pictures of what could happen in the midst of this story is Jesus offers her light and life. It happens in a moment. It happens in an instant. The go from death to life can happen in an instant. That saving grace is immediate and life happens. And she has offered that then neither do I condemn you, life. But then to go and sin no more, to spend the rest of her life to look more and to love more like him, it is a process. It is a process where we don't get it right all the time. It is a process of making decisions every moment of every day that continue to move more towards obedience, to move more towards him, yet constantly having that opportunity to be forgiven. I hope you see in the story that the way that Jesus 
handles this woman, the dignity that he gives her, if you're not yet a follower of him, that, that he is for the woman, that he also doesn't take her sin lightly. That if you're still outside of that, that you would see all of that and the offer that's there for life. You are actually invited to that this very day. But for those of us that are on the other side of the forgiveness, um, it can be easy to forget that we were all that woman at one point. All of us were, had gone astray. All of us were broken. All of us were living in patterns of brokenness and in sin that kept us away from life. And as time goes by, I think one of the traps and all that, it becomes easy to become part of that judging crowd. It becomes easy to forget that life, that grace, that thing, that first day, this, and then moves to the other side of being more willing to point out what's wrong in others and to go back and to continue to deal with what's going on in us being right instead of turning towards grace. I think sometimes uh, we can use the Christian version of it's herbal, right? And sometimes that's the people that are outside of the walls of the church, that it's the people that are not yet part of the story. So what are some of the ways that we, it's herbal people that are outside of the church? I think one of those ways is when we point out people's sin without any hope, right? Be able to tell them you're a sinner and it just ends there. And we do that in any number of ways. But when there's no hope with it, People know they're broken. People know things aren't working. It doesn't take much for most people to wake up and to realize they're lonely, and that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. The people that you work with, the people that you go to school with, the people that are in your family, they know it. And they hear from a distance quite often, you're broken, things are wrong, you're a sinner. But very rarely do people come up close and say, but you know what, so is I. And I, and I found a way out. How, how can we move through this? Can I share with you this? Can I share my life with you? Can I walk through some of this stuff with you? It's, it's rare for people that are in the midst of their brokenness to find people that are willing to do that. But here's the thing, I doubt it's so direct for most of us. I doubt most of us, it's herbal people that are outside of the church in that way of holding our rightness in that way and making sure people know they're wrong. But maybe, maybe it plays out more that people know we're followers of Jesus and they're watching what we post online or they're listening to our conversations at work and the way that we hold our opinions and the way that we talk about the things we believe in makes it very clear that they're so far outside and so not invited into anything that we believe in or that they wouldn't even be interested in what we have to say because of the way we hold our opinions. And here's the thing, uh, having strong opinions and being knowledgeable isn't wrong. In fact, God has created us with incredible intellect to be able to learn, to be able to grow, and to be able to be knowledgeable and to hold things quite clearly and quite true, and he wants us to do that. But how are we holding those opinions in place? What are we doing with them? What are the ways that we're using them? Are we using them as stones and as a weapon? Or are we using those as a way to invite people in? Are we using those as a bridge to be able to love people well? You know, it's not to just the people that are outside of the church that we become part of the judging crowd. I think a very real thing that happens, it's a lot more low grade, it's herbal. A lot more insidious even in many ways, the way we do that to each other here inside the church. To those that were sitting next to you, I texted a few friends that some are in vocational ministry, many are not, they're just followers of Jesus. I said, what are some ways that you have been uh, felt judged by other Christians? Or what are some ways that people have been right and handled it so wrong? And the text came back pretty quickly. It was a little bit uh, sad how fast people had examples for this. So some of the things people were saying, someone asking him, oh, you spent your money on that? Oh, you drive that car? Um, another one, someone said, hmm, you're not homeschooling? Or, hmm, you're homeschooling? You can go either side on that one and feel quite judged. Uh, someone else said, if you just trusted God more, maybe your finances would be better. Someone who is in the midst of a lot of pain right now said people use the phrase, God works all things together for the good of those who love them 
inaccurately and they say all things happen for a reason in response to tragedy or maybe even trying to one-up it like, oh, well, that happened to me, but it was worse. And I made it, you know, and kind of using it in that judging way of being right but handling it so wrong. Someone wrote and said, people would say, you're depressed? Have you prayed about it? Or anything else that seems to minimize mental health or put it as a place that things aren't going well and in this week, I mean, we've got to be paying attention. And the last one, uh, oh, you're that political party and you could put either one in this one. And you follow, you call yourself a follower of Jesus, right? Um, we do it all the time. And not all of these things are fully wrong. And the judging crowd wasn't fully wrong either. They had part of the truth on their side. They just weren't right in the right way. They were using the truth. They were using the law. They were using their rightness in the wrong way. They were using it to lie in wait and to ambush this person to prove a point. They weren't using it to lead back towards grace and repentance and towards Jesus himself. I believe what's being revealed in the story is that the first step of understanding when we should share this truth and when we have this truth and how we deal with it is where does it lead us? Where does having this truth lead us? Does it lead us back to repentance, back to that first memory, back to the one who loved us so much and offers us life? Or does it lead us to hold that truth so tight and to use it against others? Kaylee in her message about the woman at the well shared something I think is really valuable. Sometimes the most helpful thing we can do is to tell the truth. Sometimes the most important thing we'll do is tell someone the truth about what's going on because the truth can set us free. But the truth in love is quite different than just the truth. And someone uh, shared with me this week I thought was really helpful. The difference between sharing the truth and love versus just blasting the truth with a stone was saying that you need Jesus versus we need Jesus was using the truth as you need it versus we together are in this and need Jesus together. So where does being right take us? Does it take us to throwing stones or does it lead us to follow Jesus and to sin no more? Does it lead us to look more and to love more and to follow him more closely? I found this statement interesting. When Jesus a second time stooped down again and was writing some more on the ground, after asking his incriminating question, the redundance suggests that Jesus may now be trying to avert the crowd's critical attention from the accused accusers and from their shame, just as he had earlier sought to protect the woman from her shame and chambers, Jesus is the consummate protector of persons. There seems to be a real sense that he cared as much about the judging crowd as the woman. So no matter which side we fall on, Jesus cares just as much. Because the thing is, both of them can lead towards life. And both of them can lead towards death and further misery. My middle daughter, Andy, is six. And the other day, she came to me and she said, Daddy, why do things hurt? Why do we have pain? She'd gotten a hurt on her. And I think that's the question most of us ask all the time, right? Why is there pain? Why does this exist? It's really helpful. We went to a parenting seminar a while back, and um, they talked about these different radars that were given, pain, fear. And oftentimes we try to turn those down. We don't pay attention to them. But I said, in the best cases, these radars help point us in the right direction. So pain, physical pain, when you're working out, when you're exercising, when you're doing something, can lead us to stop doing something so you don't get very seriously hurt used in the right way, it can be so helpful. And I think in the same way, the pain of their sin being revealed to them can lead you either further in the shame and turning away and walking away and never having the opportunity to see who Jesus really is or having that radar of being that sin, of having that truth pointed out on us can lead us back to the one who loves us so dearly, the one who offers us hope and life. And this morning, we're gonna have a very practical way of doing that together. This morning, we're gonna be partaking in the communion meal. And as you came in this morning, you were presented with a stone. You grabbed one of those out of the basket. And we're going to have a very real opportunity to be able to drop 
the stone and to be able to return to the one who loved us. Because you see, this meal was set apart, a meal of repentance, a meal of God reminding us that there, no matter how far away we get from him, no matter how far into the woman's adultery or how far to the judging crowd we get, Jesus will continue to meet us at the table if we turn back towards him. That grace, that real grace, that living grace, that cheap, not cheap grace, the, cheap, the grace that actually cost his life, the grace that actually had God send him to come back to life for us, that real grace that saved us from death forever and for tomorrow is fully lived out in the meal. We're invited to come to the meal, to partake in a meal of a reminder that Jesus is there, to partake in a physical meal of nourishment that gives us life, but also in the spiritual meal that God is renewing us, offering us new life. I'm gonna invite the band to come back on stage. And in a moment, we're gonna partake in this communion meal. And the way that's gonna work today is um, the band will lead us in worship. And as you're ready, um, you can come forward to the table. And this table, this which I love that you have an actual physical table here, is actually God's table. This is not Summit's table. If you are a follower of Jesus at any time, even if that was this very day, you're invited to this meal. You're invited to this table. And we would love you if this today was the day you took a step towards him to participate and to celebrate in this meal with you. As you're ready, uh, you'll come forward. And if you need some time, please take it. We have space today. We have a couple songs in the end. If you need to stay in your seat and think for a little bit or be quiet and take some time for reflection, that's okay. But as you're ready, you'll come forward and you'll place your stone on the table at this moment of being able to drop the stone because you can't be able to hold the truth of this. You can't come and repent without being able to drop that first, being able to turn towards him. And then you'll take with that same hand that had that hard stone Take a piece of bread out of the basket and the person that is there will say the body of Christ broken for you. You'll take that piece of bread and you'll dip it into the cup. One is labeled wine and the other is juice. And the person there will say the blood of Christ is shed for you and then you'll partake of that element and return to your seat. And they'll say these things to you because they're true. Because Jesus really did come and he really gave his life and he really came back and he really does continue to meet us right in the midst of all of our situations. But he also continues to offer us new life, a new life that looks more and loves more like him that can continue on to bring light into the world. I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll continue on. God, thank you that you meet us exactly where we are, that our story is not a surprise to you, that you know every misstep we'll take, you know every opportunity to be obedient, you know every bit of it, Lord, and yet you still went to a cross, you still came back to life and you still offer us life and you continue to meet us at the table. You continue to meet us in every part of our life. Again, none of it, is off limits to you. None of it is a surprise to you. And you continue to offer us hope. Not just for our sake, though, but for the sake of others, because neither our sin nor our obedience affects just us. It doesn't just live within our own little world. It affects those who are around us and for generations to come, Lord. And your hope for this church is to be the light of the world. That's why you came. The darkness will never diminish it, but the light continues on as we continue to take that in we continue to offer it around. Lord, I pray that this meal will help remind us of that, help return to you and to be able to continue to carry that onto our world today. Lord, be with us and meet us at this table. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.